0: This Sunday, we start our Advent series. A series in which is based on the greatest story that's ever been told. As we looked in our time of Advent reading with with the lighting of the candle, there have been generations of prophets foretelling the day in which the Messiah will come. And, and it was like the only song they knew how to sing. Like, you guys that have kids, you know that when your kids learn a new song, it's like the only song they know how to sing, and they get s- stuck singing it over and over and over and over, and probably ten more overs. Uh, right, you're in a car, and you're like, okay, we got it the first three times. Like, we got it. Mary had a little lamb, right? The prophets for thousands of years knew one story. The king is coming. He's going to be our best friend. In fact, it was the greatest story that was ever going to be told. And, and everyone had begun to imagine what it would look like when that day finally came. And they imagined all these things full of glamour and grits. And it, just, it was going to be like, you know, I just came out of Nashville. And there's rhinestones everywhere in Nashville, if you don't know that. And so, you know, they thought it was going to be this big glorious day where everything was sparkly. And what we see is the greatest story ever told starts with some really ordinary people. In fact, we might even say they are extraordinary. This morning we start our Advent series, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And for five weeks in December, we are looking at a story, the story of Christmas, a story that we all know well. It is a story, as the kids confess, that changes the whole world. As we enter the Christmas season, we see the effects of the way Christmas has changed the world. Thousands of years later, even in a secularized culture, we still gather to celebrate Christmas. The stage is set once again for us as followers of Jesus to be captivated and contagious with our telling of the greatest story ever told. Through our series We're going to be exploring the greatest story ever told through refreshed eyes. A story that never grows old and that needs to be contagiously and virally told over and over again. This is a story that we look at every time of this year. And usually we try to, you know, come up with some new way to see it. Like, we've never seen it this way. Let's talk about whole peace, love, and joy that shows up in this thing. Or... Let's talk about how the prophets foretold, and we're going to look at all the hope and what that meant for the day of the Lord. And so we try to reinvent the Christmas story every year. And you know what happens? We don't leave any more change than just looking at the story for itself. This morning, as we begin this, we're going to begin this series by just following the story in order In order, with this hopeful uh imagination that i have that we will fall in love with the story once again that it it will change us as we enter this season i also encourage you to enter it with a season of surrender i'm more and more convinced that the church is uh needing to discover a posture of surrender that more and more we as followers of jesus need to find ourselves surrendered to what god is doing So despite what hang-ups you're bringing this morning or, or where you're holding out from the Lord or from community or where you find yourself harboring some distrust or hurt or hate or where history has affected you, I encourage you to surrender them to the Lord this morning and throughout this week. In fact, I'm going to challenge you each week to take time throughout this week and fast one of your meals. Fast it. And in that time in which you are not eating, right? Christmas cookies coming. It's not going to hurt you, right? We all know the cookies are coming. One meal this week is not going to hurt you. Just to hold back and focus on whatever story we are looking at. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the way that John the Baptist's miraculous birth kind of has foretold. And, and as we look at that, I encourage you this week to look at that story as we fast over one of our meals. It's a perfect time to find ourselves contagiously in love with the story again. Now, we tell the stories that are most important to us. And, and the reason I've seen this movie in which I shared this morning is because people have shared it right on Facebook when there's a video that we all like or it touches our heartstrings, we all end up sharing it. And and so I have probably seen this video over 30 times already. How many people have seen this shared considerable amount of times right? Cuz when we're excited about something when we like it, we share it. That's what we do. But it's no surprise, then, uh, that for most of us, we're more likely to make something like this go viral, as it said, than we are the story of Jesus. We're most likely to uh, sing Silent Night with a lot of passion, but actually forget to sit silently in the night waiting for Jesus with the same amount of passion, right? We're, we're more likely to uh, decorate our home and make sure there's a nativity there and make sure it looks really pretty, rather than focusing on what it means to actually live out that nativity scene in our town. And so, as we look at this story, the greatest story it's ever told, we're going to see that Luke takes not only the intentionality to make it the most important thing for him, but the most important thing for us. He wants it to go viral. When Luke writes a story, he used more formal Greek than he uses in any of his other writings, which is Acts and the rest of the book of Luke. In fact, he uses a form of greek that was used by historians and so for this particular story the story of jesus and his birth luke uses this very formal greek right like it's kind of like how in the amish right we have low german high german it would it'd be like if i was speaking british this morning which i'm not even going to attempt to do luke separates his language because he sees this story as so important it's an important piece. Because of that, when people began to transcribe Luke's work, it's pretty funny. They, they saw the intentionality that Luke had to addressing this, this story with such passion and intentionality that when they translated it, they actually added color to the transcripts. So if we look at the, the, the manuscripts, the copies of Luke's original work, what we'd see Is that the earliest people who copied that and wrote it for their churches and their homes uh, They would begin to use color In fact, Jesus and God, when it's mentioned in some of the manuscripts uh, Used this beautiful glittering gold Others of them used purple ink Now, in this time, the one color that was really expensive was Purple! It was, how do you make Purple! It's really hard to make purple. You got to crush a whole bunch of flowers. I have no idea how to make purple, right? You got to take a whole bunch of purple flowers and crush them together. And so what the manuscript copiers are even saying is, this is an important story to Luke. He uses a really formal Greek. That's going to get lost on our people, so let's put it in color. Nobody was putting anything in color at this time. That tradition, just so you know, continues all the way up through Celtic Christianity. Celtic Christianity begins to draw images around this story here. And And it's just cool to see the intentionality around this. William Barclay says about Luke's efforts that it is as if Luke said to himself, I am writing the greatest story in the whole world, and nothing but the best is good enough for it. Luke paid attention to the detail, and he took great responsibility in it because this was the greatest story ever told. This morning we're going to start our series uh, by picking up this story, the greatest story ever told, as it starts in Luke 1, 1 through 25. And by all means, uh, this is not the start of the Christmas story. Those prophets who only knew how to sing one song were the start of the Christmas story. But this morning as we focus on this, this is the part where it all starts to happen really fast. And it's the part in which we see the theme of Christmas that God will be incarnate begins to take form. And to write about this passage says, Luke is going to tell us about Mary's extraordinary pregnancy and Jesus' extraordinary birth. But he knows he will need to prepare our minds and our hearts for the story. So he begins with the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, a devout couple, about going about their everyday life and first, he grips us with their human drama. Now, so many times in life, we're afraid of drama. Throughout the 80s, we used to say, save the drama for your." Hey, way too many of you knew that, right? Save your drama for the mama. No one wants to hear your drama. When my grandma was aging... You know, you'd say, hey, Grandma, how you doing? And she'd say, I'm doing fine, but if I wasn't, would anyone want her to hear it anyway? And it was kind of this joke that we actually never really want to hear how people are doing. And so we hide our own stuff. It's called compartmentalization. It's really unhealthy, and 99% of us do it, right? We bury it inside us because we save the drama for our mama. We call her on the phone if we can. and, And if not, we just bury it because nobody wants it. But the Christmas story starts with drama right out in the open. And in fact, it's probably the most exciting part of it. Listen in. And this morning, we're going to be reading, by the way, and throughout the Advent series, through what's called the God's Word Translation. And my attempt to read it out of a new translation, a different translation, I should say, is so that it captures your mind. You know, if you always read the NIV, it's easy to fall familiar with it. If you always read the King James, it's easy to become familiar with it. The God's uh, Word Translation was uh, used by Billy Graham in a lot of his revivals. It went back to the original text, and, and not word for word like the King James, but really tried to capture uh, the idea. They call it the closest natural equivalents, And uh, it is a great translation, and I think it surpasses the NIV in many ways. And so this morning, we are going to read from that. Many of us have attempted— to write about Mary's extraordinary pregnancy. Oops, sorry. Many of us attempted to write about what had taken place among us. They received their information from those who had been eyewitnesses and servants of God's Word from the beginning, and they passed it on to us too. I have followed everything closely from the beginning. So I thought it would be a good idea to write an ordinarily account for your excellency. Uh, Theophilus, Right? Poor guy. Don't name the kids that. In this way you will know what you have been told is true. When Herod was king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the division of priests named after Abijah and Zechariah's w- I mean, wife uh, Elizabeth was a descent of Aaron and Zechariah and Elizabeth had God's approval. They followed all of the Lord's commands and regulations perfectly. Yet they could never have any children because Elizabeth could not become pregnant. Now both of them were too old to have children. Zechariah was on duty with his division of priests as he served in God's presence. He was chosen by priestly custom to go into the Lord's temple to burn incense. All the people were praying outside while he was burning incense. And then to the right of the incense altar, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Zechariah was troubled and overcome with fear. And the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son, and you will name him John. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. If you grew up in the 80s or the 70s, you probably also remember the show Sanford and Sons, right? Sanford and Sons was about this guy who was just trying to make a living. And, And whenever something shocked him, uh, his wife who had passed, he was a widower, would look to the sky and he go, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, this is the big one, Elizabeth, I'm going home. And, and he, he was always faking a heart attack when uh, something would catch him by surprise. Talk about surprise, right? An angel shows up as you're just doing your normal duties in the, in the temple, right? What would happen to us if the angel just shows up uh, you know, right here, uh, next to our altar table thing here, and we'd all be going, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, this is a big one, Elizabeth! Right? You all thought I was really going down. As he served in God's presence, he was chosen, right? And, and he's there, and the angel shows up. God has heard your prayer, the angel says. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son, and you will name him John. He'll be your pride and joy, and many people will be glad that he was born. As far as the Lord is concerned, he will be a great man. He will never drink wine or any other liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring many people in Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go ahead of the Lord with the spirit and the power that Elijah had. He will change parents' attitudes towards their children. He will change disobedient people so that they will accept the wisdom Of those who have God's approval. In this way, He will prepare the people for their Lord. And Zechariah says to the angel, "Uh, "What proof is there for this? I mean, I'm an old man, and my wife is way old. That's what he basically says, right? She's beyond childbearing years." The angel answered, and you kind of picture the angel is like getting a little sassy with him. "I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence." God sent me to tell you this, this good news. But because you don't believe, I mean, I'm here and you're still not believing, you're going to be unable to talk until the day happens. Everything will come true at the right time, the angel says. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out, and they were amazed that he was staying in the temple so long. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. So he begins to motion to him like, how do you explain what just happened in your hands, right? He motions to them that uh, he's unable to talk. That he's just seeing an angel. And when the days of his service were over, he went home. Later, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and didn't go out in the public for five months. And then she said, the Lord has done this for me now. He has removed my public disgrace. Now, C.H. Dodd captures a great explanation of this story. He says, some religions can be indifferent to their historical fact. Think of Buddhism and, and many other religions. Like There doesn't need to be a starting date and time to believe in it. But for Christianity, we move entirely upon the plane of a timeless truth. Christianity cannot. It rests upon the affirmation that a series of events happened in which God revealed himself— in action for the salvation of men. That is the greatest story ever told, that God revealed himself. Now, as I said, we all have drama in our human lives. Think about it. What are you wrestling with this morning? What is it that that weighs on you? What is it that defines you? What would you love just to surrender to the Lord? In the New Testament, Paul says that He has an affliction before the Lord. He says, I begged with him three times to take it away. But he didn't. Sometimes we have afflictions and dramas that we wrestle with and the Lord heals or takes away, and sometimes he doesn't. But this is a story of disgraces, of dramas, of doubts, and affliction. And our stories as humans are full of those same thing, disgraces, dramas, doubts, and afflictions. In this story, Elizabeth is quickly, in the beginning, defined by her inability to have children. In fact, her culture would have defined her that way, too. This isn't anything that she did, right? She didn't do anything to cause her inability to have children. She was most likely just born this way. It's just part of the broken world in which she lives in. Uh, But in this story, she is defined by her inability to have it. In this story, we also see that Zechariah is also defined by something, his inability to talk. Now, his inability to talk is his own doing. It's his own stupidity. Sometimes our dramas, our our doubts, our disgraces, our afflictions are things that happen to us because, you know, life, and sometimes they happen because uh, we're human and we do stupid stuff. Sometimes they are things we were born with, sometimes they're things we've done to ourselves. Either way, it hurts when somebody else takes our story and twists it or defines us through those things. Now, this story is all about how God uh, kind of cares for those afflictions and those drama in our lives. This couple, way past their prime and childbearing ages, had learned to live with their affliction over time. You know what? It is what it is. We're not going to be able to have children. Let's just keep our head to the grind and keep moving on. Even though they had put up with it, it still very much defined them. In this area of Jewish history, there was a possibility that they were even judged or mocked for their inability to have children. Children were always in this era seen as a blessing of God. And here was a priest, the representation of God, the orator of God— who could not have children sometimes our afflictions and dramas can not only make us feel bad but they actually can define us in the eyes of others however what we see is this story is that god cares about their plight he cares about our plight he cares about our strangeness god provides for them to have this affliction removed he did the same thing for jacob and sarah for Abraham and Sarah, and he does this thing for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were not expecting or ready for it. All of a sudden, they're told that God's going to remove their drama, their affliction, and even more, they'll have a son who will play a part in God's kingdom coming. That greatest story that's ever going to come. That one song the prophets knew how to sing. He'd become an instrument in the renewing of mankind. Now think about a drama or affliction in your life. What would you feel like if after years of learning to put up with it, all of a sudden, God takes that one thing and redeems it for his story? Zechariah and Elizabeth are people that are just dedicated and committed to serving God. They actually live outside of town and Zachariah probably only traveled to town for food and when he has to serve in the temple um, he enters the temple to burn incense now the funny part about this is Jewish tradition is not one as I understand it to use incense in their temple burning and we overlook this part a lot it was highly used at this time by pagans to represent things pagans would always in their temples burn incense to, to kind of uh, symbolically represent things but here's Zechariah, a high priest, he walks in and he does a pagan practice in the middle of a Jewish temple. See, at this time, Jews had taken this thing and they had redeemed it for use. They had taken this worldly way of practice and said, hey, you know what? When that incense fills a room, it's kind of like our prayers going to heaven, or it's kind of like uh, our whispers, our surrender to God. And it reminds us of God's presence. It fills the room. And so they had begun to use this redeemed practice to show worship to God. And already in this story we see that God can redeem anything for his purpose, whether it be a barren woman or another form of worship. In this space then, Zechariah, you know, he, he ends, enters in. It was his, his tradition. He He was a son of Aaron. Like every guy that was born in the line of Aaron how to become a priest that's just that's what it was and so uh, there were so many priests at this time that they broke him up into divisions and took turns serving in the temple now he's a priest he knows that when he goes into the temple to do his activities that by all means there's a chance the presence of God is going to show up but what happens in life is so often we live into routine suddenly the greatest story that's ever told is that nativity that we set up on top of the piano in our living room next to the christmas tree and the big pile of presents the greatest story ever told can become routine and it had for zachariah so he's taken by surprise and doubts as he encounters this angel now the angel is disappointed and the result zach becomes a mute Sin had plagued and now defined Zechariah. However, Zechariah runs out of the temple. He's probably waving his arms around, trying to tell everything that's just happened. It's now realizing that the story that God is doing has manifested itself on him. There was no doubt when he came out of that temple that the story of God had transformed the story ends with Elizabeth rejoicing in what God is doing. She says, "He's taking away my disgrace." God had taken away the drama or the doubt or the affliction that had shamed her. The same thing would be happened to Zechariah when John is born and he's able to say, "His name is John." Right? He he finds himself released. Though so God doesn't always take these things away, but well, what we do know, and that's, we know that from Paul, right? i pleaded three times. What we do know is that God can use those things. He can redeem them for his purpose, for his worship. The story is so much bigger than Zachariah's joy as he finally gets to have a son. It's so much more than Elizabeth's song and her prophetic confession of joy. Rather, this is part of the greatest story ever told. God came near and he used ordinary people despite their disgraces, their dramas, their doubts, and their afflictions. We should be telling this story louder than anything else in our life. This story holds the DNA or the secret to our identity, to the identity of our neighbors, that God came near and he used ordinary people, full of really messy things, to write the greatest story ever told. And T. Wright says, It's about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, the hopes, and the fears of ordinary people were not forgotten in this larger story. Precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish, self-giving love, as Luke will tell us in so many ways throughout his gospel, when this God acts on a large scale, he takes care of smaller human concerns as well. The drama, which now takes center stage, is truly the story of God in the world and every ordinary human being who has lived in it. The drama that started the story, Elizabeth can't have a baby, Zachariah doubted, has now given way to the drama center stage of the greatest story ever told that God came near. They took their disgraces, their doubts, their disadvantages, and turned them into a redeeming part that tells a story. I think there's many things that we can take away from this passage, and I encourage you to flip over to the back side of your bulletin, and we're going to make a few of those in closing. First, we are reminded as we look at this, we are reminded this is a story that we need to approach with intentionality and passion. Luke's introduction to the greatest story ever told is certainly one that is deeply intentional and full of passion, right? That's why he uses the best Greek It's no doubt. He says, hey, you know what else, guys? I needed to research this even though I walked with Jesus. Like, this is what I think I love the most about this story is Luke walked with Jesus. Luke saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Luke saw Jesus heal people. Luke saw Jesus rise himself from the dead. And as he's older now and he's writing his story— he still says, I needed to research because learning about Jesus is never enough. I need to approach this with intentionality and with passion. The story was not lost on him. He did not grow tired. of it. In that way, then, too, Luke tells us that we are reminded we must know and experience this story for ourselves. We must know and experience for ourselves. Luke's the father of Jesus, as I said, and he says, I will, I took time to research. He says, I know there's many other people writing about this story. I mean, hey, that's great. But let me tell you, I went back and researched. it. And, and a lot of historians and theologians think that at the time, Luke probably would have been able to tap Mary on the shoulder still. Right? How did this stuff happen, Mary? I mean, I doubt Elizabeth and Zachariah made it too much after that birth because, whew, that was a crazy story. Can you imagine, like, they're probably like in their 90s, maybe even 100, and they're raising a small boy. Anybody want to try that? Right? Yeah. So, I'm glad no one raised your hand. I didn't think about it. Like, that was rhetorical. But what if someone would really raised their hand? That would have been awkward. So, um, William Barclay writes this. It is most significant that Luke was not satisfied with anyone else's story of Christ. He must have his own story. Real religion is never a second-hand thing. It is always a personal discovery. Luke models for us this thing I love, that despite how much we know in faith, despite how much we know Jesus, it's important that we constantly grow in what we know and experience in our pursuit of Jesus for ourselves. This is the greatest story that is ever told, and we must keep immersing ourselves in it. In that way, we see that we remind us of a story that comes to life through illumination and dedication. Now, on Christmas mornings, Christian families around the world sit down and often read the story of Luke. I have fond memories of watching my father sit in his recliner. I think that's the only place he knew how to sit. And uh, uh, and so he would sit in his recliner and nobody better touch those presents onto Luke 2 was read. How many people grew up in families like that, right? You woke up, mom had the Cinnabons on the table, um, and uh, well, we didn't call them, we called them Sticky Buns, right? I don't know why I said Cinnabons. And 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 then nobody did anything to Luke 2 was read. Then it was time to open presents. This story Luke tells illuminates it unlike any other passage. This is a passage that we see is not only illuminated by the Holy Spirit, but also because Luke has dedicated himself to researching it. It shows that God isn't meant to just fill in the cracks, that it needs to be first and foremost, like my dad would read the scriptures, right? That's not important. This is. Sometimes, when we grow up in the church, we can get used to things. And I just kind of reflecting on this now. My my dad came out of an atheist background, so uh, reading Luke 2 to him was the story. That was very passionate. And, and for us, we all know that story, so it's like, bam, right to the presents. Hey, we give presents, kids, because, you know, God gave a present to us. And, and that's kind of the reality that we live into because we grow familiar with the story. Luke does not sit on hands. He models for us what Jesus teaches, seek and you shall find. This is a story that we approach with the same attitude. We can't approach it with, we already know this. Uh, You know, it's all about having a big Christmas to do. Um, We don't need to have a big hip and kind of cool church service. What it is, is that we need to discover for ourselves and through dedication, be pursuing of it. We can't sit on comfortable hands when we engage the greatest story ever told. This isn't the story of God coming to a man. It is the story of God's favor, pouring out on loving, broken people like you and I, and coming near in a redeeming way. In that way then too, we are reminded, this is a story that reminds us that God will reveal his voice to us. Now I love this story because many people point out that historically at this point, prophetic word, angel visitations, all those kind of things had grown quiet. People were, hey God, where you at? Right? You've had those seasons. Zachariah was a priest, but he was also just an ordinary person. He was in the family business. He, uh, anybody else here in the family business? You just grow up and you just know that's what you got to do. Right? So he lives into a bunch of expectations. Talk about that, right? Like there's a hundred generations before him that are, you know, priests as well. And all of a sudden, he is got to do that too. And so chances are that if you grew up Jewish or in this, there's a lot of expectations on you. And that can really define the way you approach things. In fact, it could also then define who you marry. You got to marry somebody in his his, uh, division that was only of Jewish lineage. Right? There's always a lot of expectation in families on who you should marry. Uh, it was expected that he would have a child. And then, you know, there was even some rabbis at this time. Now listen to this. I'll read this to you. They wrote this. This is from this time. A Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife and has no child should be considered excommunicated by God. Right? Sometimes our own expectations or our family's expectations, on others' uh, we take them and we put them on others as if they're God's expectations. However, despite all that, God breaks through and he sees Zachariah as God's servant and God shows his words for himself. In St. Joan, the play of Jane the Ark, Joan of, what is her name? Yeah, there we go, thank you. Uh, St. Joan uh, is encountering a king, a dolphin, and she is sitting there and the king says, Why don't the voices come to me? I'm a king, not you. And Jones says, They do come to you, but you do not hear them. You have not sat in the field in the evening listening for them. This is the greatest story that tells us that God longs to reveal to us himself for himself. He loves to reveal his voice to us through the expectations that we have on us, that define us, that, that... might have uh, plagued us. God loves to reveal his voice if we are sitting, listening for him. This is a story that reminds us that we need to let the transformative story live on us. There was no doubt about what the story did when Zechariah comes out. There's no doubt on what the story did when Elizabeth shows up on Sewing Circle after six months, and, and she's got one of these, Right? The story changed everyone around. There was no doubt that the priests who were outside the temple and the others who were praying were not changed when when Zechariah comes out. You see a guy coming out that all of a sudden lost his voice, and he's—I mean—that changes you, right? The story doesn't partially change us; it transforms us and leaves no doubt. We must let the story live on. Lastly, we take delight in the Lord. We remind that this is a story that reminds us of God's favor and, our care for our, and God's care for our needs. In Psalms, David writes, take delight in the Lord and he'll give you your heart's desires. As we push into what Paul calls the mind of Christ, and as we grow into that, uh, the things that are on our heart, God longs to fulfill those things we're reminded that this is a story that shows that God's favor and care is in touch with our needs, our dramas, our disgraces, our afflictions. This is not a Christmas story or movie uh, like a Hallmark movie, even though I love those. Anybody with me? Right? We all know how they're going to end. Everyone always looks like a model in them. They're perfect. Like, their Christmases are perfect. The snow seems like it's never cold. Um You know, like, it just is full of tinsel and beauty. In this story, the real Christmas story, it doesn't look that pretty. There's lots of disgraces, dramas, doubts. But despite all that, it becomes the greatest. They live into surrender in the Lord in such a way that he's able to redeem whatever they're dealing with and make something out of it. In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says, God allows us to experience the low points of life in order to teach us lessons that we can learn in no other way. However, in this story, God does more than just uses somebody's problems to teach them uh, that Jesus is the way. He uses somebody's problems to teach them that Jesus is the way for the whole world. He uses the, the afflictions of an ordinary person to tell the whole world that Jesus will be God incarnate. He uses people just like you and I. He wants people who will surrender their disgrace, their trauma, their doubt, their affliction, to help change the world by letting the story live on us and out from us. One of the passages that stands out to me as I was focusing on this passage this week was when the angel uh, is declaring to Zachariah this about his son. He would change disobedient people so that they will accept the wisdom of those who have God's approval. And this way he will prepare the people for the Lord. God not only used this miracle of redeeming a affliction to show up how he was going to show, but John the Baptist, the outcome of that redeeming part of the situation, would be the foreshadow or the forerunner, the prophetic voice that went before Jesus— and so Jesus, the whole time he's on the earth in ministry, is led, uh, he follows the leading of John the Baptist, who is this testimony, this prophetic witness of what God does to people's disgraces and dramas, and it leads the way. The greatest story is where we learn to announce and embody and demonstrate that despite all the things we're wrestling with, the Lord has done this for me now, and he has removed my public disgrace. We sing silent night, but in this season we must remember to sit silent at night to hear his voice. We sing, O little town of Bethlehem, but we also need to make sure that we take the story of Bethlehem and live it in our little towns. We give each other presents, but do we remember to give the presents of this story to each other and to our neighbors and to our family? morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. As the beginning of our Advent season. While we reclaim and live out this story both individually and as a community, it's also our job in a community to remind each other, to help realign each other, to help renew each other on these things. In that way, it's how our disgraces, our dramas, our doubts, and our afflictions can find redemption community is also a place where we experience the presence of god together as josh comes forward i'm going to read to you from luke 24 1 through 35 on the same day two of jesus disciples were going to a village called emmaus it was about seven miles from jerusalem and they were talking to each other about everything that had happened while they were talking jesus approached them but they